Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome on the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we are now less than 48 hours from when pitchers and catchers report to spring training in Sarasota. So it's the perfect time for our spring training prediction show. So we're going to predict some things that we think are going to happen in spring training while giving you our projected roster for opening day, plus a recap of last week's announcement of the Orioles coaching staffs for the 2023 minor league season. We'll get into that, but we're going to start first with the projected roster. What we did was the three of us sat down and made our own predicted 26-man rosters for opening day. And the result was that we more or less had the same roster, except for one very key area, which we're going to get into in a moment. And on the position player side, we were unanimous. Um, Catcher is probably the most settled spot on the roster with Adley Rutzman and James McCann. I'm going to start in the infield, though, with our discussion as Ryan Mountcastle, Adam Frazier, Ramona Rios, Jorge Mateo, and Taryn Vavra all make our projected roster. Those are the six infielders, of course, with Vavra and Frazier. There's a possibility of some versatility where those guys could get into the outfield. But for the most part, these are the Orioles infielders going into this year. And, Nick, I'm going to start with you here. We know that the Orioles, you know, are pretty set at the four starting positions in the infield and they have their reserves in place. But then at the same time, they have a lot of players in that non-roster invitee list that look like possible options for the bench. So was there ever a thought in your mind about maybe making a surprise switch in that area? I mean, not really, honestly. I think if you just zoom out and look at the roster as a whole, I, I kind of see maybe one, maybe two spots legitimately up for grabs this spring. Like when the Orioles go to camp, I think 24, maybe 23 of the spots are like virtual, either 100% locks or all but guaranteed locks at this point. And I think that's true for kind of most teams. Like you're not going into spring training with a bunch of open camp battles here. But as far as like the infield goes, I mean, maybe someone, depending on how all this shakes out, and again, barring injury or something like maybe they find a way for the favorite among the Ryan O'Hearn, Lewin Diaz, French Cordero to make this roster. Uh, but kind of like what we were talking about before we came on air, you know, how much time do we see Anthony Santan there play first base DH and how good of a fit he is there versus, you know, Taron Vavra, can he keep a spot on this active roster? I, I just think this infield group is a pretty tough group to crack. I'm sure we'll talk about the prospects a lot, too. I don't see any of them making the active roster on opening day. 
So yeah, it's it's a pretty tough tough group here. A good group. Yeah, I completely agree. And and barring injury, which is the key word. Hopefully, we don't need uh, to fill anyone to fill in with injuries, but always a possibility. But other than that, yeah, I kind of think, you know, maybe Taron Vavra is that last man on your bench that's hanging on there. And I kind of think between Adam Frazier and Taron Vavra, they might play more outfield this year than Anthony Santander does just because he's continuing to gain bulk and strength, which I think is great for his bat. He's showing more in-game power than ever, and he's learned how to take a walk, but I think he's a prototypical first-base DH type at this point in his career. So, you know, if he's if he's in the outfield, I feel like it's only in a emergency situation. But, yeah, on the infield, unless you want to get, like, a, a big bat off the bench, like a Franchi Cordero or – Nomar, Mazzara, even a, well, definitely not Ryan O'Hearn, maybe Lewin Diaz. Uh, I, I just can't see, barring injury, much room for anyone to crack in there. Yeah, I agree. The only real debate that I had in my mind as I was putting this together was Vavra in that last spot. But what really settled it for me is that Vavra offers a versatility that Lewin Diaz no more Mazzara, Ryan O'Hearn, or Frenzy Cordero are not going to give you. Vavra can play second base. He can play left field. He can play center field. He's reportedly been working out at first base. And while I'm not sure that that's the best fit in a lot of respects, it probably means that the Orioles at least feel like they can put him there in an emergency or every, you know, let's say one, one or two games a month. So that's going to help Vavra out a lot, not to mention that you know, I think overall, if you look at the results that he had last year at the plate, they were decent, especially given that, you know, he became a new father right after coming to the major leagues. So his time there was, you know, there was a lot going on off the field for him. So there, I think that if you want to look for utility player who gives you that versatility, good strike zone judgment, and has some of the swing decisions that the Orioles like, Vabra offers that. And I think that unless someone in that group of Cordero, um, O'Hearn, and Diaz comes in and just plays so strong in spring that they force your hand, it's going to be really tough for them to pass Vabra. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the numbers there. I mean, he only had a strikeout rate of 18%. He walked almost 12% of the time. And he was league average, 97 WRC plus, 340 on base percentage, like 258 average. That's pretty solid. I will take that for your last guy off the bench. Uh and I think you know, Zip's projections – is that – am I looking at the right thing? Yeah. I mean, Zip's projections are even pretty good. If you like those, Zip's has him as a 104 WRC plus and a 1.4 F4 player. I will gladly take that as your uh, 26 guy. But, yeah, I think there was a lot. He just – he got no regular playing time, I feel like, when he was up. And then, like you mentioned, yeah, the, the major life adjustments he's going through while trying to adjust to the big league roster – I'd like to see him get a little bit more playing time, but you know, Adam Frazier's there. We understand why he was brought in and how much time he's going to see on the field as well. If first base works out, great. But, yeah, I think even Taron Vavra's got a pretty solid uh, hold on that position, and it's going to take something pretty big to kind of overtake him. Yeah, I mean, big ups to Vavra to have the wherewithal to realize, hey, they're going to need someone to fill in at first base from time to time. Let me uh, pick up one of these gloves and, and work on that in offseason. So very uh, smart, savvy move by a guy who basically that's his whole game, right? That's He's not the biggest, strongest, best athlete, but he's smart. He always had a great at bat, even at the major league level, was never wasted. So 
Yeah, I think he's got a, a real chance here to uh, maybe start the year as like that last man on the bench who doesn't get much playing time. But if he makes the most of it, he can increase that, you know, week in, week out until he's finally the everyday center fielder and hits 30 home runs. That may <laughs> never happen. But. We'll move over to the outfield now. And again, no real surprises here. You have your core outfielders of Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, and Anthony Santin. They're all on the roster with Ryan McKenna, who has, you know, probably helped the Orioles out in a lot of ways. Still pre-arbitration eligible. Gives you speed and defense um, there as a reserve. And then Kyle Stowers, who came up late last year and, like Vavra, struggled to get consistent playing time. and But had his moments, and I think did enough that you at least want to see what he can do with an extended run in the majors this year. So with that in mind, I'll start with Bob here. I think this group's pretty much settled, but how do you see the Orioles maybe mixing and matching them uh, over the course of the season? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think maybe if there's just a tiny bit of potential for a difference in the outfield, it could be if they love Daz Cameron a lot more in spring and he does enough to overtake Ryan McKenna for that fourth, fifth outfield spot. But I highly doubt that's going to be the case. I mean, McKenna was good in that role last year and hit lefties well, plays a great defense, good speed off the bench. So, yeah, I think it'll be those guys. And I think it's going to be Cedric Mullins pretty much every day in center field. Obviously, maybe uh, Austin Hayes in left most nights, Kyle Stowers in right with uh, Santander at DH. But maybe Adam Frazier fills in for... Or Vavra fills in for Hayes against a, a tough righty. Maybe we know, despite the even splits, that uh, Stowers is probably going to get benched against lefties sometimes. Maybe then McKenna slides in there, gets some playing time in a corner. But, yeah, I think this is going to be pretty much it between those four guys, Santander, Frazier, and Vavra. It's going to be plenty of guys that can play the outfield. Yeah, this is pretty easy for me. I jotted this down in like five seconds. Um, it's Mullins, it's Santander, it's Hayes, it's McKenna, it's Stowers. Uh, even looking at the non-roster invitee list, like Calder's not going to make it. Kersad's obviously not going to make it. The others are Daz Cameron, Nomar, Mazara, and Robert Newstrom. I will talk about, I think, two, uh, two of those guys, at least. I know uh, I've got jotted down here for like later questions when we talk about predictions and stuff, but I don't see any of them like McKenna is maybe the spot that is probably vulnerable. But even then, like you mentioned, he had his strong points last year. He came around a little bit. And even Santander, I, I'm just trying to find the numbers. and I can't pull it up here live in time. But um, it was a shout-out to Ben Palmer from Pitcher List and former uh, one-time co-host of the show. Uh, you know, he kind of talked about you know, this willingness to just move Santander out of the outfield. And while we all understand why, we want Santander primarily maybe more first-base DH. He was actually decent in right field. Like, he's okay. He was also a gold glove fly finalist out there that when you're out in right field, I know that was a 30 you know, games like, playing. Yeah. Time. Yeah. A little bit of a Mickey Mouse uh, nomination there. But I mean, he's not terrible out there in right field. But um, yeah, I think this is just a solid group. It's a, it's a good defensive group. As much as I bash Hayes, he's got speed, he's got athleticism. He's going to give you 100% out there defensively. Sometimes maybe early on in his career is to his detriment even, but uh, it's it's a solid, solid group out there. And I don't, yeah, again, this is even a harder uh, group to crack compared to the infield. Yeah, I kind of envision the Orioles, you know, going with 
probably Hayes, Mullins, and Stowers most nights with Santander at D8s. But I have to imagine that you're going to see Adley Rutzman at D8s quite a bit this year because we know what a difference his back can be. And now that you have upgraded the backup catcher position with James McCann, that gives you the opportunity to move Adley out from behind the plate sometimes, give him a rest and still feel like you're in good hands back there. Then that allows Santander to move to right field. And I think the other thing is that the Orioles have shown they're willing to kind of be creative with the outfield sometimes. You know, there's a lot of scenarios last year when they were in Tampa Bay where Hayes and Santander would switch. Hayes would go to right field, Santander would go to left. And I'm, you know, I thought I had pinpointed that at one point the right field wall is higher and slightly deeper to trap than the left field wall. And I don't know how much that strategy actually helped or hurt the Orioles last year. But it's an example of how they'll mix players around. And I, when I watched Kyle Stowers last year, I agreed that the defense looked a little rough when he got up to the major leagues. But it's not something that can't be cured with more playing time, especially if the bulk of that playing time comes in right field at Cannon Yards, which he's more than capable of handling. Yeah, that's the point I was going to – last point I was going to bring up about the outfield is I, I know a lot of people may not want to believe it, but Kyle Stowers is a much, much better defender than what he showed in the majors last year. Like, there, there's no second, third levels at Harbor Park. Um, you know, the lights are not that bright at these minor league stadiums. You can find, you know, Walmart parking lots at 2 a.m. in the sketchy part of town with brighter lights than some of these minor league stadiums. Like, You've got to adjust to the lights. You've got to adjust to the upper deck. You've got to adjust, adjust to fans, 20, 30, 40,000 fans, good arm, good athleticism. You don't want to see him out there in center field at Camden Yards probably, but he played a lot of center field, a lot of center field coming up through the system. So if you need him there for a couple of games, like he's, I don't think he's going to kill you out there either. So he's, he's a lot more athletic than I think some people give him credit for. And, yeah, he just needs, he needs the reps. He needs the experience out there. I think if he gets the opportunity, he'll show he'll show that defense he showed in, in Norfolk and, and Bowie over the last two years. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned it before, but if you go back to when Cedric Mullins made his major league debut and the whole sh- you know thing was made of Adam Jones moving to right field for him, well, he had some issues with the with the trip, uh, triple layer stadiums and the bright lights as well. And and uh, look at him now; he's Gold Glove caliber center fielder. So yeah, I wouldn't get. Too worried, and he didn't really get consistent playing time in the outfield to really just earn and learn that adjustment on the fly. He was benched a lot because in the middle of a, a playoff race, and you don't want your rookies up there too much, I suppose. Even though I, I might have gone about it a little bit differently, but yeah, I, I'm not worried about his defense whatsoever. I'm pretty sure people will forget about those shaky couple games uh, pretty quickly here in 2023. Yeah, Bob, I'm glad that you mentioned Mullins back in 2018 because I saw Mullins quite a bit after he came up to the major leagues. And from the eye test for me when I watched Mullins compared to what I had seen in the minor leagues, I often thought his routes to the ball weren't very smooth. And that often when he was able to get to a ball, it was because of his speed, because he was so quick and he was athletic enough to make an adjustment that if he didn't get a good read on a ball, he could still get to it. But that, that first step and that initial read might not have been entirely majorly ready yet because you get better at those things with experience. So I think that can be the case with Stowers. So we'll see how that goes. But we're going to move into the pitching staff now, and I'll actually just go into our first prediction 
of the predictions part of this episode, uh, tie the two together. And that is, will D.L. Hall make the opening day roster? And I will start with Bob. I I think I'm the only one who believes this, but I, I have him making the opening day roster, actually. Um, I know Elias said that they thought about a six-man rotation and they ultimately, for now, think they're going to just go with the five-man because they don't want to deplete the bullpen too much with the new option rules and, and roster rules with 13 pitchers, 13 hitters. But he didn't rule out a tandem between Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, which I... I just I have a weird feeling that that's going to be the case at least early on until you know they can get past any innings restrictions that they might have. I could see them being a tandem for the mo- first month or so of the season, and then you know if there's an injury or some a spot opens up somehow, and they're just both too dominant to even justify splitting a day with them. Maybe then you know you can either go to a six-man rotation at that point or you know one of them bumps another guy out. So I say he will make the opening day rotation, but. At this point, I, they're going to keep him as a starter, so I feel like he's either getting starter-type innings at the major league level or at the minor league level, so I can see why you guys did not. This, this I think, is the biggest conversation to have and, like, the most uh, – a really good debate topic um, as far as the camp battle goes. I don't see any other position that is going to be as intense as this because – you got two guys who are locks in the rotation. You got two guys who you really hope are locks pick up where they left off. And then you got one guy in Grayson Rodriguez who the organization clearly wants in the major leagues. Um, if you can have Grayson Rodriguez and Gunnar Henderson fighting for AL Rookie of the Year honors, the extra draft pick, the extra draft money, uh, that's that's pretty good odds. But, yeah, Hall, I wanted to put him in, and I've said on the show a couple of times that D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez are not going back to AAA and here I am on our prediction show saying I've got D.L. Hall in Norfolk's rotation. Um, I do take comfort, though, in a lot of those recent quotes that came out from the organization, you know, talking about how they are really high on D.L. Hall and they want him to be a starter. So, yeah, injury could happen or he could be so good this spring he forces the issue. But I just think if the organization is that high on D.L. Hall and you want to give him that opportunity, it's a lot easier to get him into the rotation if you're stretching him out in Norfolk's rotation versus using him out of the bullpen. And then now you've got to build him up. You know, I, I don't know. I, it's, I can go either way here, to be honest. I want him on the major league roster because the last guy I have, I don't know if we get to the bullpen or not, but the last guy I have is Keegan Aiken. And I'm sure that's another like debate topic there. I put Aiken as my last reliever as a lefty. Could D.L. Hall make your major league roster better? Like, probably. He probably would if you're comparing him to Aiken for that last spot. But at the same time, if you want him as a starter, I'm fine with a month or two in in Norfolk's rotation. I really struggled with this. And I'll just say up front that my personal preference would be Hall over Aiken and that I would be okay with pitching Hall out of the bullpen early on, even if the intention – is to have him start. And what I would do is either decide up front, okay, he's going to be a starter at some point this year. So we're going to have him on a plan where he's going to come out for more than an inning every time he's in, and he's going to have a clean inning for the first month of the season. He's not coming in in the middle of an inning. He's going to have a clean inning to start so we can keep him close to a starter's routine. Or he's a reliever this year. And we'll revisit this starter conversation next year because there's precedent for that now with Tyler Wells. This regime has shown they can do that. So 
that would be how I would handle it. However, what I think gives Aiken an edge right now is that if you're looking at that box inning scenario out of the bullpen early in the year, you probably feel like Keegan Aiken is better suited to that role for the first month or so. Because you're going to have to really watch your starters' innings. And I think, you know, Irvin and Gibson, you know, Cole Irvin and Kyle Gibson, I think you know what you're getting with them. But Dean Kramer, Kyle Braddis, Grayson Rodriguez, and even Tyler Wells and Austin both, if one of those two manages to crack the rotation, you're going to be careful with their innings on the front end because you want them there at the end of the season. And I think Keegan Aiken allows you to do that with a little more certainty than D.L. Hall does and a little bit more flexibility. That doesn't mean that I think Aiken's on the roster for the full season or that Hall is going to be stuck in AAA until the All-Star break. It's just that when I'm thinking about how the Orioles might want to plan the first month, Aiken probably fits their needs a little bit better than Hall does. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's fair. And, you know, for me, it wasn't even D.L. Hall's taking Keegan Aiken's space. It was more... Austin Verth and Tyler Wells are taking Keegan Aiken's space, and Dio Hall is just earning the right to get starters type of innings uh, on this team. So, yeah, I mean, Keegan Aiken, look, he surprised the hell out of us last year, did way better than I would have expected, but that second half scares me, and I just, I don't know, something about it, I just can't trust that he's going to continue to pitch as well as he did in the first half of last year for a whole other season. I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but... I don't know. I feel like he's going to be a potential spring trade, and we're not even going to have to worry about this question very much, but we'll see. That'd be great. I'm, I don't want to – I feel like I'm going to come off as a King Aiken apologist over here, and that's the last thing I want to do because um, I am not. But, um, yeah, like I'm trying to find my roster that I had here. Yeah, so like my rotation, I had Gibson and Cole Irvin. Those are the locks. Bradish and Dean Kramer – you hope those are locks. And if they pick up in 2023 where they left off in 2022, then like, this is a playoff team. Um, Great. And I've got Grayson Rodriguez as the number five, not the number five starter. I don't know an order right now, but just the fifth guy here. Uh, You want him on the active roster again, like I mentioned for the rookie of the year honors. And then bullpen, I put Austin Voth, Tyler Wells, Dylan Tate, Michael Givens, Felix Batista, Brian Baker, Aiken, and Perez. And it came down to that last spot of, you probably want a, a second lefty because I only had one in Perez. So I'm like, well, I want to give it to another lefty. Nick Vespi's hurt coming or coming back from surgery. I think he said he should be hopefully ready to go by opening day, but he's going to have to ramp up. There's really the left-handed options are pretty limited. So I was kind of viewing it deal Hall versus Keegan Aiken. And I just thought you want Hall as a starter, put him in Norfolk for a little bit, let Aiken go. And Aiken actually pulled up some numbers because I was like, how good or bad was he? Because I don't think I watched any Keegan Aiken last year, if I'm being completely honest. Um, and you look at the second half, he did have that little bit of a collapse. But like first half for second half up on Fangraphs here, the ERA went from 2.36 to 4.76. Batting average against 178 to 310. I mean, just huge number difference. But if you look at some of the other numbers, scroll down a little bit. The strikeouts went from 21.5% to 26.6%. The walks went down a little bit, 6.3 to 5.6%. And while the ERA was, you know, 4.5 or whatever, his FIP was only 2.55 versus a 2-point-something ERA in the first half and a 4.5 FIP in the first half. So I, I don't know what to make of that either, to be completely honest, or what kind of Keegan Aiken we're going to get. Yeah, you're starting to convince me a little bit, but 
I'm going to stick to my guns. <laughs> but there's, that's good information there because it's like maybe he wasn't as good as we thought in the beginning and he wasn't as bad as we thought in the end. So interesting. Yeah, at this rate, I think I kind of view Aiden as a nice depth option to have in your bullpen. Um, and I looked at those numbers too, Nick, and I was surprised to see, you know, I knew that the ERA had taken a big jump, but I was surprised to see the walk and the strikeout numbers trend in the direction that they did. And here's another thing that I found interesting about his season last year. You would have thought that he was a guy that benefited from the left field wall, Canem Yards being moved back because he is such a fly ball pitcher. Yet when you look at his home road splits, his ERA was almost was a little more than two runs lower on the road, two eleven away compared to four fifteen at home, um, or four point one five at home, in almost the same amount of innings, thirty eight and a third on the road, forty three and a third at home. Yet the strikeout and the walk numbers were much better at home than they were on the road. What is behind that? I have no clue, but it's interesting when you start to pick Aiken season apart. There are some things that make you think. This guy is going to completely regress this year. Trade him now or put him in Norfolk's rotation. Or you know, actually, he wasn't that bad. And if he goes out and he repeats that exact same thing this year, he's probably helping you more than he's hurting you. Yeah, basically, the more we learn about him, the less we know about him. <laughs> um, and I feel like Joey Craviel is kind of being a, a little forgotten here as well. He had some good moments last year. and. Now I feel like he's not even talked about as a potential bullpen arm. So what do you guys make of that? I didn't know he was still on the roster, <laughs> to be completely honest. Like when I was doing the bullpen, I'm like, I want Austin Voth there. I think he is just the perfect long man, spot starter type guy. Team him up with Rodriguez Hall, whatever, doesn't matter. But I think he's a solid bullpen option. I said before, Tyler Wells, I want him in the bullpen. Like, why not? Why would you not want that extra giant out of the bullpen? And he's so good there. And that's not a, a knock on Tyler Wells at all. I think he's a fantastic Rule 5 success story, uh, or can be. I mean, he's still young and he's early on in his career. But I just think you maximize his potential out of the bullpen. And then Tate, dominant last year. Perez, a career year. Michael Givens, I don't even know if we ever talked about the Michael Givens signing when it happened, but – I think it's a really, really good insurance policy. That's how I view Michael Givens. King Felix back there. Baker, I like Brian Baker. I love the attitude. I love the fire. Um, even if he just pitches against the Blue Jays, I'm here for it. And then I saw Joey Crable's name there, still on the roster. And I'm like, no clue. Had no idea he was still around. Crable is a kind of pitcher where I think if we were going into – the season with expectations like we had last year, you would probably pencil Crable into the bullpen because he was very good in the first half last year. And he was that guy that you could turn to in the middle innings to get you more than three outs and keep the game close or if the Orioles had a lead to maintain it. But the two moves that really put his spot in doubt for me and were, you know, one of them was a Michael Gibbons signing. And the other is one we're going to talk about in a little bit here. And that was the decision to draft Andrew Politi from the Red Sox in the Rule 5 draft. I kind of thought when they took Politi, it's like, okay, Crable's spot on this roster is not assured because if there's a role for Politi, it's the role that Crable had last year. And now you add Michael Givens into the mix, and I think it gets a lot more complicated. And with that, I'm actually going to turn it over to Nick for our next prediction prompt, which kind of builds off this conversation. So using the starters, 
I think we all have a group of six here, the finalists. Uh, who is, what is the initial order of the starting rotation? We'll start with Bob. I actually, and I know uh, patron Ben Dwarst's Orioles stats one is going to hate this, but Kyle Gibson, I think, is going to be your opening day starter. The guy he doesn't even want in the rotation. But uh, then I think you go Cole Irvin second. Just the way they, Elias talked about these guys as locks for the rotation. I feel like you want a veteran who's not going to get shaken by the fact that it's opening day, opening series, and it's in Boston, right? So, And then I went with Dean Kramer. Just because, what a story. Give him a chance to be the first young guy to go out there and give it his all, try to repeat last year. Then I say Kyle Bradish next. And then that tandem I talked about, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, which I'm going to try to get to some games and uh, figure out when those guys are pitching together if that happens to be the case in the end. I went with the same five pitchers, but with it in a different order. I have Cole Urban as the opening day starter. Um, I think he'll have a solid camp. I think that that just kind of makes sense in a lot of different ways as an opening day starter. So I'll go with him. Then I actually have Kramer second. I don't think Kramer has gotten enough credit for how good he was down the stretch last year. And while I know that he hasn't really established himself in the way that, certainly not in the way that Cole Urban and Kyle Gibson have, and the track record isn't there, he's going to have to have a really, really bad spring training for me to not think that he belongs in this rotation. And I think he's going to have a good camp, and that's going to move him up you know, a couple of spots here. Then I have Kyle Gibson third, with Kyle Bradis fourth, and Grayson Rodriguez fifth. I like him. I'm also going Kyle Gibson as the opening day starter. He's the veteran, right? It's, I think that's, yeah. Um, I initially had Kyle Bradish too going Kyle and Kyle, but then I, I just looked at it again. And uh, Kyle Bradish at home against the Red Sox, very, very good. On the road against the Red Sox last year, uh, very, very bad. So I think I'm going to switch these and go Kyle Gibson, Cole Irvin two, Kramer three, then Bradish, then Grayson Rodriguez. The only thing with Dean Kramer, and I agree, I, I am back. I think at one point when he was back in AAA, I even said, like, I've pretty much all but written him off because, I mean, that was disastrous. You guys watched those starts. He was a complete head case down there in Norfolk, and I thought it was done. So all the credit to Dean Kramer for his turnaround. Like I said, if Bradish and Kramer pick up where they left off last year, this is a playoff team. I have no doubt about that. The only thing that worries me about Dean Kramer is – early on in the season is he's pitching for team Israel for the world baseball classic. What's his ramp up going to be like, and how's that going to impact him early on? That's the the only thing that I'm worried about the first couple of turns through the rotation here. I keep forgetting the world baseball classic is happening. Yeah. I, I gotta, gotta get that straightened out in my head, but um, yeah, good answer. Good answer. Uh, mine. I'll go with the next one. I'm going to change it a little bit because we kind of already talked about this and we none of us had any of the NRIs making the opening day roster. But if you had a crystal ball and you knew that a non-roster invitee made the roster, but you don't know who it is, what would be your guess as to who's going to make it? I'll go with uh, Zach. I'm going to go with Frenzy Cordero because I feel like if there's a bat that just gets hot over a three or four week stretch, it's probably Cordero. And I don't think the Orioles want to or should use him in the outfield a lot, but they have that fallback option to put him in right field at Cannon Yards every now and then if they have to. 
is that left-handed bat that can give you some power. The really big thing that I'm going to be watching for over that small sample size that comes with spring training is how many pitches is Cordero seeing in, in at bat, and what does his walk rate look like? Because the lack of patience has really been what has prevented him from being successful at the major league level so far. There's no question the guy can match upper level minor league pitching. And I just feel like if you want to look at that sort of helium guy where he's going to get hot, he's going to force their hand, and it's going to be how can you not put this guy on the roster? It's going to be Cordero. Yeah, Frenchie's going to fool a lot of people. And I say this as the ultimate Frenchie Cordero fan. He's going to hit some unbelievable home runs down there in that Sarasota wind. And uh, it's, but at the end of the day, he is uh, Frenchie Cordero. And if he's in the outfield, it's going to be a little bit comical. Uh, I'm so my answer to this question was nobody, but since you're forcing us to pick one here, I'll go with Leo and Diaz. I, I just I don't know. They went after him so many times. How many teams? Like eight different teams. I lost track. Uh, how many different teams went after him? We know the defense is really good, and he can match the baseball as well. Same as Cordero, right? He can hit those monster home runs. But at the same time, he hasn't been able to do it at the major league level. Maybe if you unlock a little bit there, you like the defense so much. I imagine he's a much better defensive first base option than, you know, Santander or Taron Vav or any of the other options. Maybe you work him in a little bit in the beginning of the year. I don't know. But, yeah, if you're forcing me to answer, I'll say Diaz. Good, because I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I had Franchi Cordero written down, but just because I talked about it earlier, it could just be that big bat off the bench that you can always bring in late in games if you need some offense or some strikeouts, but hopefully offense. But I also had Jordan Westberg as an option, just thinking, okay, I'm pretty confident that none of these guys are going to make it. So if one did, there must have been a trade or an injury. And at that point, just give Jordan Westberg his shot. You know, he, he deserves it at this point. I honestly don't think it's going to happen probably till like May or June. But if a non-roster invitee was going to make it, I could see it being him as well. I'll just throw this out there real quick before we move on from this prediction. I love the idea of Lewin Diaz playing first base every day in Norfolk when you have that infield. It's probably going to have Joey Ortiz, Connor Norby, and Jordan Westberg early on and should have Kobe Mayo at some point in the second half. Because to have a really good defensive first baseman paired up with your young infielders is a great combination. So I really like the idea of Diaz being at Norfolk as depth, even if he's not on the opening day roster. And I'll go now to this next prediction, which goes back to our conversation about the bullpen and about Andrew Politi. Uh, the Orioles rule five pick from the Red Sox back in December. What percentage chance does Politi have to make the opening day roster? I will start with Nick. Um, before that, to build off your last point that you made, and also if you got Maverick Hanley behind the plate at AAA, I imagine the pitchers that are pitching for Norfolk are going to have an, an unbelievable time with that defense behind them. Mav behind the plate, that's chills. Um Politi, though, I, I'm going to be generous and say 10%. I just don't see a path there for him. But I'm going to mix Politi into the answer to the next question. So I'll just end that one there. I also want to go back to the Lewin Diaz <laughs> point and say I want him to get some serious playing time in AAA Norfolk just so we can talk to Tim John about his uh, defensive first base uh, <laughs> next offseason. I think that would be a lot of fun. And uh, – yeah, I was thinking like 5%, 10% for Politi as well. I want to 
say he's got a shot, but this bullpen is pretty loaded with plenty of options. So I don't know. Maybe they can make a trade to keep him in the organization and, and send him down to AAA. But, yeah, I think he's on the outside looking in, but you never know. Maybe he comes in looking unbelievable and it makes things happen. Or maybe there's enough injuries or trades that open up a spot for him. Yeah, I give Politi, I'll just go with 8%. Um, so it's kind of around the same number that you both have. I liked this move at the time, and I still like it. I think that Politi is going to get major league innings somewhere this year, whether it's in Baltimore or back in Boston. And he'll be you know fairly effective. But when the Michael Givens signing happened, it just sort of felt like the Orioles were shutting a door, and then it came even harder after the Cole Irvin trade, because you then knew one of Austin Vokes or Tyler Wells is going back to the bullpen. So there's two spots where Politi could have slotted in that now you don't really have room for him. And because of how good this bullpen was last year, he already had an uphill battle because it's going to come be hard to come in and in a span of three weeks, convince the Orioles that you're better than Brian Baker when Brian Baker, for all intents and purposes, was pretty good last year and really good down the stretch. So that's a tough it's a tough battle for Politi. Part of me kind of hopes that he makes it just so the Orioles can see what they have for a little while, but I just don't know that I, I don't see it happening with the roster the way it is right now. Agreed. Moving on to uh, the, the trades here, trade question. We're, we're kind of moving past our, our DraftKings ads. Uh, I'm sure some people are happy about that. But we're going to keep talking betting here because we're going over under. We're setting the line at one and a half trades during spring training. We'll start with Zach on this one. I'm taking the under. I think if you see a trade, it's going to be one probably from an area of surplus towards the end of camp. Uh, the bullpen would be a place to look. Maybe you see, you know, an infielder or an outfielder moved in a small deal, but I'm going to take the under one and a half. I just don't really see two trades coming in during camp. Give me the over. I think uh, I think that there's going to be another bullpen trade like the Saucer and Scott trade last year to kind of clear up some space, give some people uh, a better chance to make that bullpen like we talked about. And and I think it was Simkin in the chat who said it would probably be for more of a major league talent or at least close to one. I kind of agree with that, but uh, maybe like a, a left-handed hitting outfielder or someone to replace Austin Hayes, although I've kind of just given up on the possibility that he'll be traded at anytime soon. But the other trade I could see either one of Ramon Urias or Jorge Mateo getting dealt, and that could open up a chance for a Joey Diaz or a Jordan Westberg, Joey Diaz, Joey Ortiz or Jordan Westberg making the opening day roster. So I'm going to say two. I know uh, if uh, Vivek's trade rules go, then, you know, we could trade uh, cash for a player to be named later in account. So I'm taking you over. <laughs> yeah. I was also looking at the non roster invite list again and a name that's. Edward Bizardo is sticking out to me. I, I just want to throw that name out there randomly here. Um, he's talking about pitching and Politi and can he make it. He's got major league experience too. But as far as the trades go, I'm going to say over. I do think a bullpen arm is moved because, yeah, if, if you've got some of these non-roster invite guys do have major league experience, 
So if you really like what they did in spring, uh, then maybe you decide you, you keep one of them and add them to the 40 man. And then you say, hey, if Aiken's not pushing it or it's whoever isn't cutting it uh, and you just had to, to move them from there, I think that'll be one trade. And then the second trade, I'm going to be optimistic again with Politi and say he does have a good spring training, just not good enough to crack that group. But the Orioles go to Boston and say, hey, we like him. We want to keep him. What do we take for him? And they make a trade for Politi. And then that way they can put him in the minors and he's still in the organization. Very cool. All right. Um, let's see. If an infielder not named Gunnar Henderson starts the year on the injured list, who steps into the roster spot? Let's go with Nick. If an infielder not named Gunnar gets hurt, I want to say Westberg. But I don't know. I feel like last year I was a lot more bold. In the last two years, I was a lot more bold with the predictions and the takes. But then the Orioles just crush those dreams all the time. So I say if an infielder gets hurt, it's not going to be Westberg. It's not going to be a non-roster invite guy. It's going to be a waiver claim. After you know one of the big cut days, Michael Elias is going to see someone on that waiver wire that he loves, and that will be your part-time replacement. God forbid something like that happens. I'll stick with uh, Francie Cordero here because I think if there's any scenario that you come up with of who gets hurt, the Orioles can account for that spot. If something happens and Jorge Mateo is going to miss the first couple weeks of the season, that probably means more time at shortstop for Gunnar Henderson and more time at third base for Ramona Rios. If Rios or Adam Fraser gets hurt, you still have Taryn Vavra there. If Taryn Vavra gets hurt, you have Adam Fraser. So – you have all of these different scenarios up the middle accounted for. And at that rate, you can probably just take who you think is the best hitter. So I'll go with Cordero as the answer to that question. I also almost went with Jordan Westberg. <laughs> Sorry, Westberg, you're getting a lot of close but no cigars on the, these predictions. But I ultimately went with the guy who's on the 40-man roster already with Joey Ortiz, not Joey Diaz. And I could just could see his defense making a difference as far as uh, – the decision if even if he's not starting he's able to be plugged in at second short maybe even third in a pinch and because i just love joey ortiz let's get him on that opening day roster you know so a similar question here if an outfielder not named anthony santander starts you're on the il who steps into their roster spot i'll start with bob yeah this one i i wrote this question up both of them actually the reason i put not named santander and not one of the other ones is because I don't know. He's more of a first <laughs> DH type, like we talked about. So just get him out of the picture and someone that's going to actually have to play defense. Let's get them up. Uh, I personally went with Daz Cameron. Like I talked about earlier, I could see him maybe potentially beating out Ryan McKenna for that fourth, fifth outfield type. And I just feel like if, if Santander is hurt or if someone not named Santander is hurt, then you're going to need that defense that can play center field. So give me Daz Cameron and hopefully it's not for long. Yeah, it, if you need somebody to play center field, Daz Cameron makes all the sense there. I'm going to go Nomar Mazzara, though, the big bat. He's got plenty of major league experience year after year after year. Bounced around, I know, but, man, just I, he's going to be a lot of fun to watch in Norfolk. Him, Franchi, Lewin, like that the party deck at Harvard Park is going to be a legitimate party deck next year out there in right field with all these left-handed power hitters. But if you got to force somebody, I would not mind seeing Nomar Mazar up for a few games. 
I'm going with Cordero again because I think it's a situation where the Orioles have a lot of scenarios accounted for. However, I will attach the caveat that if it happens to be Mullins or Batena, and you know you're going to have that need in center field, then that gives Daz Cameron the edge because he's really the only guy on the non-roster invitee list that I see as a center fielder you would call up in that situation. You're not going to call up Colton Kowser if – you know, Ryan McKenna has back spasms and is going to be out the first 10 days of the season. You're not going to call him up for that, but you would add Daz Cameron to the 40-man roster and have him there. Um, so if it's, you know, someone who's more of a corner bat, I think that creates another opening for Cordero and means that you're going to see Adam Frazier or Taryn Vavra in the outfield more in the early stages of the season. Uh, but if it's McKenna or Mullins that go down, you're going to have to account for that time in center field, and that's where Daz Cameron's going to come in. Look, um, this is the last one that we wrote here. What relief pitcher? Okay, I talked about Edward Bizzardo. So I go, I forgot we had this as a question. Um, that's Spoiler not my alert. answer. <laughs> not my answer. I've got a different answer though. Um, but Bizzardo is a really good answer. What relief pitcher has a chance to surprise everyone this spring and make the opening day roster out of nowhere? Start with Bob. Uh, originally I was going to say Darwinson Hernandez just because I really loved that waiver claim and sneaky move to get him off the roster and keep him in AAA Norfolk. I really feel like this guy has a chance to be a really decent bullpen arm under the Orioles player development, but I thought that was a little bit too obvious just because he's a little more, you know, not, I wouldn't say high profile, but he's got enough major league time that people know who he is. So I went with Cole Uvila ultimately, just because typically when you sign a minor or I know he was rule five, minor league rule five guy, but he's almost like a minor league free agent signing and pitched all of last year in AAA. So they got plenty of chance to see him and he's still here. So obviously they like him for one reason or another. We know he's got pretty good stuff. We've talked about how outside of one month, his numbers were really, really good. So let's say he comes in, he worked with the team in the off season to improve even more and did what they wanted. There's some trades, clear out some space. He slides out in spring training and boom, he's on the opening day roster. I'm going to go with Darwin's and Hernandez here. I thought about cheating and picking Politi, but Politi's on the 40 man roster in a rule five spot. So I don't think it'd be a terrible surprise if he made it. But with Hernandez, it, when I watch him, my feeling is if this guy could just throw strikes, he's going to be a really good pitcher. And he could be this year, CNL Perez if he's able to do that. Unlike Perez, I think he's going to have to start the year in Norfolk and show that he's making those strides before he gets a shot at the major league level. But if there's a surprise opening or two, I could see Hernandez being that guy because that would give you another lefty who can throw hard electric stuff. And if he just starts locating it better, he could become a shutdown reliever pretty quickly. In an ideal world, there's a comment. Wanderson Charles, yeah. In an ideal world, that would be pretty sick to have him throw in 100, 101 miles an hour and then in the eighth and then bring in uh, Felix Batista in the ninth. Uh, but I have the same answer as Bob. I want Cole Uvilla as well. I'm just going to keep wishing it into existence. I want him to make his MLB debut somewhere, ideally here with the Orioles, but the guy deserves his shot. Uh, and he's, he does have an opportunity to crack the big leagues at some point this year, but yeah. Numbers are really good. The stuff is good. So hopefully it works out for him. We had some good prediction prompts slash questions from some of our listeners. So I'm going to turn to them and uh, we'll start with Kevin Brown, not Masson's Kevin Brown, at least we don't think. Um, 
who will be this year's Jake Fox? Uh, Fox, as you remember, years ago hit really well in camp for the Orioles and basically was not heard from again, at least as far as the Orioles were concerned. So let's start with Nick. This is my favorite question every year. Um, and I need to rebound from, I think I said Seth Mejia's Breen last year, and now he's like a coach in like the Seattle's organization. Uh, so I guess, but he was also terrible in spring training, so that didn't work out. Um, I hate to say this. I really hate to say this. I'm going to go Robert Newstrom. I think he goes out this spring knowing that this is his final opportunity with the Orioles. And it's going to be like for people like us, we know Robert Newstrom. He's not this guy that's coming out of nowhere. Right. But it, it, he knows it's going to be an uphill battle. He's also trying probably to impress other teams when he goes out there. So he probably has this really solid spring. People get excited again. Somehow a door opens and suddenly we look up and he's on the major league roster. And then, you know, says it in the name, Jake Fox award. Um, there, there it is. So I hate to say that with him, but I could see that. Yeah. I also love a Jake Fox reference. It makes me laugh, but also makes me feel old. So thanks for that. Um, I went with the most just WTF name I could find on the NRI list and just be like, if this guy goes off and just pummels the ball and people are wondering if he's going to make the team or not, but uh, Curtis Terry, just mashing home runs, right-handed first baseman, big guy. I could see him hit five or six home runs and people start talking and there's no way he's making this team no matter what. So I'm going to go with Ryan O'Hearn. And I know that might not be a surprise if O'Hearn hits well in spring training, but I could see where, you know, kind of like Cordero, he gets hot over a few weeks and maybe there's not room for him on the opening day roster because the Orioles just have better options in front of him. But what that does is that either opens up a scenario where he's perhaps dealt to another organization or he goes to Norfolk for a little bit. And I don't know. I, I'm not sure if his deal with the Orioles includes an opt-out or not. I'm not positive about that. But maybe there's a scenario in play where O'Hearn comes in and hits well in camp there's not room for him with the Orioles. So within a few weeks, he catches on with another organization. But I feel like there's someone who's going to do that this year. It'll be O'Hearn. Ryan O'Hearn is going to be the Chris Owens of this year. He's going to sneak his way on this roster somehow, and he's going to make like 30 starts for this team. I can feel it coming. So we'll get this one. Um, Cedric Mullins is one of the players who will be part of the World Baseball Classic playing for Team USA. And Tim Cook wants to know who will get the majority of home center field starts once Mullins uh, joins the WBC team. We'll start with Nick on this one. Daz Cameron. I think strikeouts, as he's moved up, like the upper levels of the minors and then the majors, like strikeouts are more strikeouts, less walks. I think he was walking at a pretty good rate in the lower levels of the minor leagues. But, I mean, he was a former first-round draft pick. Traded for Justin Verlander, right? If I remember that, he's part of that trade uh, with Detroit. I know both of those things were many, many years ago, but like the prospect pedigree is still there. That connection to this regime, current Orioles regime, when they were in Houston, is still there. You know, a lot of his weaknesses are things that we've seen this player development staff improve with guys and improve at the major league level with guys. Like look at what they did with Santander last year. So I just think if you got more openings in center field, they're going to go to Cameron. And you tell him, hey, you whisper in his ear, yeah, outplay Ryan McKenna and show us you belong on this roster, and there's your chance. Like it's Colton Kowser's going to get some time, yeah, but Colton Kowser's not making the opening day roster. So I think Daz Cameron could, 
I'm sure he's ecstatic that Cedric Mullins is playing for Team USA because he has a real opportunity, I think, this this spring. I think that's a really good answer. But I went with Kyle Stowers. I could just see them thinking, hey, this is a chance. If we want him to get more every, every day at bats or close to it in 2023, let's let's see if he can play center field a little bit in the major leagues, give him some versatility in the outfield, could play all three spots potentially. I don't know if he's quite up for the task, but we'll see. And what better chance to do it than uh, while Mullins is off playing for the, the USA in the World Baseball Classic? The correct answer to this is probably Ryan McKenna, because especially if Team USA has a deep run in the World Baseball Classic, you're going to be getting to that point where your regulars are playing more often in spring training, they're playing more innings. And McKenna at that point is going to be the closest thing you have to a regular major league center fielder in camp. But it does create a real opportunity for Daz Cameron. And, um, you know, Cameron, as Nick mentioned, was part of the Justin Verlander trade. And you look at his minor league track record, he was a solid hitter until he got to AAA. And he just has not been able to hit at AAA yet. There's a, you know, a skill set there that at least gives you good depth. So I feel like that's going to be an all distant for Cameron to show he can be in Norfolk. And when Colton Cowser or Hudson Haskin is not in center field next year or at the start of the season, you can have Cameron in there. And pitchers might feel like they have a center fielder who's just as good, if not better, than the guy that plays out there every day. And if McKenna isn't cutting it early in the year and you want to make a switch in one of those bench spots or an injury opens up a roster spot, Cameron gets that shot. So he's got an opportunity to really um, prove himself, I think, or at least make the Orioles feel like he should stick around the organization for a while. Uh, We'll go to a question here from David Adams. Outside of opening spots, what do Ortiz, Westberg, Kowser need to do to prove in spring training to show that they're ready to make the opening day roster? And I'll turn this question over to Nick first. Uh, I mean, like I said, none of them are, I don't think, going to make the opening day roster. Again, maybe this is just me being sour this year and not wanting to get bold. But I guess looking at what they need to do, Ortiz, maybe just like show you can attack major league pitchers, right? Get on base. Uh, if the power is there, I think that's great. But I'm more just hit for a good average. Get on base. Uh, the glove, The glove is elite enough that's going to take you there. Um, hopefully he gets to face a good amount of MLB vets as well. And we'll see what he's got. Kowser, maybe just impressed defensively and kind of same as Ortiz show. You can handle the more advanced breaking stuff, show that he's making the right swings. I'm not going to bring up strikeouts with Kowser, uh, but just, yeah, do, do all the basics there. And then Westberg, honestly, I, I just think Westberg, he is who he is at this point. I, I think if you bring him up in the majors, he's going to be a 260, 270 hitter with better power than a lot of people expected coming out of the draft. He's going to strike out maybe a little bit more than you like, but he's also going to get on base at a pretty high clip, give you a little something on the base paths. I think just show that you're a standout defender wherever the Orioles put you, second, third, short, first, wherever they want to put you, show that you're, you can play the position and maybe you get that opportunity. For me, it's kind of the same for all three of them. It's just – it's not not about the stats, not about the numbers they can put up at spring training. It's just, can you play and not let the speed of the game at the major league level with major league talent, you know, overwhelm you? Uh, like kind of like we saw with 
Uh, Vavra at second base defensively. Stowers, it's not even offensively. It could be defensively, like we said with Stowers in the, the triple-layer stadiums and stuff like that. Just, you know, can you not stress too much, not press too hard to try to do too much? Just can you play your game with this major league speed of the game? And, and yeah, I don't know. And I just, even if they do that, I don't think it's going to be enough to, like, make them be on the opening day roster. But if circumstances happen that, uh, you know, injuries, trades, whatever, yada, yada, plus that, then maybe there's a chance. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I don't really see a clear path for them making the opening day roster. And it's really just about showing that you're not overwhelmed by the competition. As for specifics, I still wonder, do you run Westbrook out in the outfield at all? Because I I feel like you're going to have to have him out there a little bit this year for him to make the roster because he has all these infielders in front of him. Joey Ortiz is a better defensive shortstop. He's on the 40-man roster, whereas Westberg is not Rule 5 eligible until after this season, so he doesn't have that 40-man roster spot yet. So he's got a few obstacles in front of him right now, and you could help him clear some of those by playing him in left field a little bit. So if the Orioles go that route, and I'm not sure they will, um, it's really just going to be showing that you know, you've got a good base to build from and you can take that work down to Norfolk and continue to improve. Um, so we'll go to this question now from Ben Dewurst. Which backup first baseman between O'Hearn, Cordero, and Diaz makes it out as a primary backup to Mountcastle? Do they land on the 40-man or are all three stashed in Norfolk until one is needed? And I'll uh, start with Bob on this one. I'd don't think any of them have much of a chance. Um, I think they're all three will start in Norfolk, but I think we've talked about Franchi Cordero and what he could bring to this roster potentially as like that last man on the bench. So if any of them, I'd say Franchi Cordero, but I think they're all going to be in Norfolk or maybe one of them might not even be in the organization. I don't know. Depends how things go and how things shake out. Yeah, I think one of them does, at least one does get added to the 40 man. Once you add, you John Means and Seth Johnson, you have to go on the IL, so you're going to open up two spots there. So I think that will give the opportunity to uh, safeguard one of these guys. And I'm, I'm going to continue and just go with Lewin Diaz. I just think the defense maybe gives him a little bit of a leg up. Uh, Cordero's bat is definitely better, and he's a lot more proven at the major league level. But if you can just unlock that little bit with Lewin Diaz, he's got the good glove at first base, which is what you want, I think, that gives him the opportunity in the big leagues at some point. Yeah, I don't see any of those three making the opening day roster, but like Nick said, you probably do put one of them on the 40-man. My guess right now would be that camp will end with one of them on the 40-man, one of them in Norfolk, and the other with another organization. Um, I think Diaz starting at first base in Norfolk every day makes sense for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. So maybe he's the guy that goes on the 40 man and then someone out of Cordero and O'Hearn is either, you know, either moves on or goes to Norfolk and is not on the 40 man. But I think that that's going to be what plays out is that none of them are on the opening day roster, but two are still in the organization by the time camp ends. I'll go now to this question from Yoni. Who needs to have a good season in the pen in order for the group to have a good year, and I'll start with Nick on that one. 
So, I mean, just looking at the guys that return, I mean, my first thought was honestly Felix Batista. I think a lot of this falls on his massive, massive shoulders. Like, if for whatever reason he isn't the real King Felix uh, that we've come to know and love, like we could see a situation a couple years ago where we've got good pieces, but you know Dylan Tate's not being used in the right situation and right position. Uh, which I think has helped him. They found the role that fits him best, and now he's excelling. And so I just think if if Batista is there and he's the dominant ninth inning closer, everything else is going to fall into place. Like I said, Michael Givens is a good insurance policy. If if it's Brian Baker that regresses, if you know Joey Crable makes the roster and he stinks for whatever reason he makes the roster, like Givens is there. I just think Givens is a good low leverage backup guy. Um, you know, if Perez regresses, if we're using my situation with the rotation and how the projected roster and DLs in Norfolk, if Perez regresses, you say, all right, DL, like we want you to be a starter, but you need to be our left-handed fireballer out of the bullpen. So there's a lot of safety nets here with this bullpen, but it's all up to King Felix to come through again, which I have all the confidence in the world he will. I'm not going to lie. I have the slightest worry in the back of my head that what if the improved command that he showed last year all of a sudden goes back to pre-2022 levels, and I don't want to think about that. So I'm going to go with Dylan Tate. I just feel like he seems like the glue guy. You just take it for granted that he's going to do his job. He's going to go out seventh or eighth inning and, and you know, you know, might slip up, give up a run every once in a while, but he's pretty much going to do his job and, and things are going to get moving. But what if that's not the case? I mean, yeah, you could easily just shift Michael Givens into that role, and I think that is a really good backup option for that. But I don't know, just – he seems like the key cog in the bullpen this year to me. I kind of go with Batista here, and not because I think Batista's going to regress. I think Batista's going to have a good year. But if Batista repeats what he did last year, he's probably an all-star this year. If you really think about that, that's an all-star level reliever. And to have that at the back end of your bullpen is going to make everything else a lot easier for Brandon Hyde to manage. And I thought that one of the reasons – that CNL Perez broke out the way that he did last year was because Brandon Hyde could use him in situations that were favorable to him. As Bob mentioned, you know, Dylan Tate got into situations that were favorable to him. So that's really going to be the big thing is can you continue to put those pitchers in spots that work for them? And I feel like with everyone else, there's going to be someone down in Norfolk that if that pitcher struggles, um, you can have – a backup there waiting for them. And while this is not something that a lot of Orioles fans probably are getting excited about going into camp, top to bottom, Norfolk's pitching depth, rotation and bullpen, should be stronger this year than it has been in quite some time. So I'm not as concerned about someone in the bullpen going down with an injury or pitching really bad in April and needing to be replaced because I feel like the Orioles are going to be able to make that work. We didn't even talk about Michael Bauman at all this episode. I mean, he's still That's there. <laughs> like he, I don't know. I don't, I still, I've said this for like two years now. I don't view him as a starter. I, I don't know why they have, I know why they haven't, but I just think put him in the bullpen and just let him ride as that late inning power arm. But he's there um, growing through. Logan Gillespie is still in the 40 man roster. We know he can throw the ball hard. He's got a good slider. I mean, a little bit rocky last year, but he's still there. If you unlock something with Yanni or Cano, I know a lot of people want to ship him off the 40-man, but 
I he's got something about him that makes me really really like him. Uh, he has not proven it at the major league level. He may never will, but I like that he's still there in Norfolk for another year. Let's see if he's got something. That's three guys with MLB experience right there as their backups, and oh, Nick Vespi as well, like and Bruce Zimmerman. But you know, but Nick Vespi is going to be healthy before too long as well. Again, from the surgery, what was it hernia surgery? So it wasn't shoulder, no elbows or anything. He should be good to get roll. You got so. So many good depth options that are going to be down there in Norfolk. So we'll go to this question here from Vivek. In the journey of this three-, four-year rebuild, what has been the most surprising revelation or theme you've noticed about the Orioles? Essentially, what has surprised you the most? I'll start with Bob on this. For me, it's going to be the consistency of the player development, not just in the minors but at the major league level. Just talking about Felix Bautista, now we just take it for granted that he's not going to walk anybody and his stuff's going to play up and he's going to be an elite closer. But that literally was a development basically over an off season from 2021 to 2022. And it's just, it, I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough. Chris Holt, we've heard he's a magician or whatever <laughs> uh, phrase that touted his skills as a pitching uh, development guy and, and pitching coach. And it seems like that is absolutely the case. I mean, between the way they've been able to increase the command and control that these pitchers with great stuff have. And that's another reason why I'm really still confident that DL Hall can be something better than just a, not like uh, a back-end reliever is anything to sneeze at, but I feel like they can do even better with him. And to me, it's just that from the bottom to the top, the player development has been consistently good. And it's really weird as an Orioles fan for that to be the case. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Yeah, I'm kind of in that direction too. And just say, like, what surprised me the most is how incredibly fast this organization has built an army, a massive army of just hitters in the minor leagues. And like, they just they ignore your stupid pre-draft rankings. They don't care. They're going to dip down and get Hester Gerset. They're going to get dip down and get Colton Kowser. And what does Kowser do? He ends his first full year of pro ball in AAA. Connor Norby in AAA first year. I mean, they get hitters. They've identified the exact type of hitter they want. They've identified the exact type of traits they want their hitters to have. And once they get them into the system, they're just like, trust us. We're going to help you get better. Just trust us. And how do they gain that trust? Everyone works together. Like the coaches and instructors, they move up together. Cody Ashy, Anthony Villa, the guys behind the scenes, moving up. We'll talk about the coaching staff, touch on that at the end there. A lot of coaches have moved up. Um, you know, it's a true collaborative effort, not this whole, well, this is how I did it in the 1950s when I played ball. So you're going to do this 500 times because I said so. Like the coaches listen to the players and the players listen to the coaches. So yeah, you know, like Bob said, a lot of successes at the major league level with Matt Bork Schulte and Ryan Fuller up there. And I think it's going to continue. I think when Ryan Mountcastle, not if, when Ryan Mountcastle has his breakout this year, anyone who's not paying attention will be paying attention at that point. And so, yeah, like, I know hitting is only half the game. And, um, you know, we could sit here and talk for six straight hours about pitching. Um, don't get us started on that. But, like, in this particular aspect of the game, the Orioles, I think, have nailed it. They're excelling at it. And it's it's been, what, three years. They've gone from uh, – Randolph Gassaway is one of the top hitting prospects in the system to, I mean, look at the guys at the back end of, a, of the top 30. They're future major leaguers. Yeah, you're both right. I think that those are really good answers. 
if I had to build off of that, the two things I would say is that I didn't see the international scouting efforts accelerating the way that they did on Toby Perez. That was kind of the area that I thought if you look at how the organization is going to be built, because they were essentially starting from zero, although Dan Duquette had been a little bit more active at the end of his tenure. These were not high-dollar signings that he was making. And I thought they're going to have to play catch-up with 29 other teams. That's going to take years to accomplish. And then Perez is in there, what, a year when they signed Samuel Basayo and Michael Hernandez? And then you start to see it snowball from there. Now, we don't really know yet how many of those moves are going to work out or if any of them will, but the Orioles are at least trying now. And they're legitimate contenders. And I suspect that once a new academy opens in the Dominican Republic, um, that's going to be the case even more so, regardless of whether the long-term future in international scouting resides in free agency or the draft, which is a separate subject for another show altogether. And I would say to the waiver claims, um, look at guys like Austin Voth or Jorge Mateo coming in. They're now valuable pieces of what could be a contending team this year. And they were valuable pieces to a team that was in the playoff hunt until the final week of the season last year. So the way that the Orioles have used the waiver wire, which was something that was ridiculed a lot early on under Mike Elias, has been, I think, a really pleasant surprise and something that fans should be happy with. And I'll go to this last question from Vivek. Um, Do you have a player or players you are monitoring for the 17th pick of this year's draft, which is where the Orioles are picking the first round this year. I'll start with Nick. Of course I do. Um, if I wasn't doing this show and everything involved in our total production, that I think I spend more time doing this than I do my actual like real job that my family depends upon. Um, I, I'd be writing every day and doing podcasts about college baseball. But um, I'm excited to drive in, dive into this class a little bit more. I know D1 season starts Friday. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. The birth of my second kid last April, kind of, I didn't focus on college baseball last year. I struggled to keep up with this, but um, I got two names. If you're a draft nerd already, uh, I don't think it's going to fall to us, but Wake Forest right-hander, Rhett Louder. Uh, I'm just going to buck all the trends, say the Orioles pitching here. He's my favorite player in this entire draft. Wake Forest guy comes from the Wake Forest pitching lab, upper 90s fastball, changeup slider, 80 grade hair. He pitches down here in the Valley League over the summer. Like if the if he somehow falls to 17 and the Orioles draft him, I'm driving to Baltimore to give Brad Sue like a hug personally. Um, and then Kyle Teal of UVA is another favorite of mine. And I don't want to sit here and praise the University of Virginia because as a JMU grad, I don't think I'm allowed to, but. Kyle Teal could be a legit target, and I love that because he's a catcher. Uh, so just sees the, the reaction there. But he could play corner infield, corner outfield. He's very athletic. Uh, huge lefty bat with good raw power. I think the home runs take off this year. Walks more than he strikes out in college. He's being mocked just past the Orioles' pick. So uh, if he starts tapping into that raw power, uh, Kyle Teal. That's a early, very early February pick of mine. Well, I have nothing. Uh, every year, I want to be better and be prepared for college baseball. And every year, it just sneaks up on me, and I'm not prepared. But I rely on guys like Nick and the guests that we get on the show for, I guess we should do a college baseball preview at some point soon as well. But, uh, yeah, I wish I had a better answer, but I'm leaning on guys like Nick to uh, give me the info. 
Yeah, I'll admit that I'm approaching the draft a little slower this year than I have in the past, mostly because the Orioles are picking further back in the first round. And, you know, the attention that I can devote to this podcast has gone more to the major league roster than it has in recent years. But because he was mocked to the Orioles by MLB Pipeline back in December, and apologies of other outlets have mocked him there as well. But a guy that I'm going to have my eye on early is Matt Saul a shortstop at Maryland. Part of that's a proximity bias because College Park is just down the road from me. So I'm hoping to see Saul in person early on in the year. But the other thing is, yeah, here's another college bat with offensive upside who plays a middle infield spot. If the Orioles feel like Saul could stick at shortstop, which we're not thinking right now they're going to need another shortstop, and he's there at 17, that could be an interesting pick. That's a guy who I had my eye on early on. Otherwise, you know, kind of looking at maybe someone like a Noble Meyer or a Charlie Soto, if the Orioles go with a high school pitcher and buck a lot of trends that we've seen in the past, but I have no reason right now to believe that. So that's kind of where I'm looking. It's going to be college bats, specifically Matt Saul early on. Orioles take a high school pitcher first overall. Uh, We're in the multiverse. We're just going to get Ben McDonald on. How about that? Let's try to get Ben McDonald on, and he can just talk LSU baseball for like three hours. That would be awesome. I'll sit here and listen to I'll listen to whatever he wants to talk about, to be honest. Well, Ben McDonald, that is your invitation to come on this show. So um, <laughs> you know where to find us, at BSL on the Verge on Twitter. Uh, we'll wrap up here with the um, coaching staff announcements, which dropped last week just after we recorded our show. And not a significant amount of changes from last year, except for some notable moves. Brink Ambler moves up and is now the hitting coach in Norfolk, while Forrest Herman, who was a pitching coach at Aberdeen and who has been praised by a lot of the pitchers who work for him, including Dustin Armbruster, when he was on our show back in December, will jump up a level to double A. So, again, not a ton of changes from the team staffs from a year ago. Some familiar names, Roberto Mercado will be back at Aberdeen. Kyle Moore is managing Bowie once again. Buck Britton will be helming the Norfolk Tides. And Felipe Rojas Alou Jr. will be the manager down in Delmarva for a second straight year. But overall, it's sign of continuity in the Orioles player development system. I think it's a good thing right now. So I'm not going to reel off every single assignment because that would be a long segment. But just say that you know there's definitely – Good continuity and some interesting names in the mix here. So, Nick, just starting out with you, what are your thoughts on the player development staff for the 2023 season? I love that there are a lot of familiar faces. Um, just the things that popped out to me, yep, like you mentioned, Brink Ambler. Tim Gibbons no longer at the organization. He was Norfolk's hitting coach. Now it's Brink Ambler who was with Delmarva, so he gets a huge jump. Um, I think that's a testament to what he was doing down there in Delmarva. And if if you read John Muley's newsletter, I mean, just quotes for days from Brink Ambler about those guys. Uh, Force Herman, the wizard, as Armbruster called him, uh, replaces Josh Conway and Bowie, who's no longer in the organization. But th- this is another reason. Force Herman moving up to Bowie. Carlos Tavera is going to be in Bowie. Carlos Tavera, put all your money on Carlos Tavera in 2023. Just call that out again. Um, the interesting names, I think, were Sherman Johnson is now the Bowie hitting coach. He replaces Brandon Becker. Uh, Johnson, 
draft pick of the Angels out of Florida State, just 32 years old. He was in affiliated ball up until 2021 and then played indie ball last year. So he just retired from the playing side of the game. This is first job, coaching job, and he's the double-A hitting coach. So I think without knowing him personally or professionally yet, I think that tells you exactly what you need to know about him and how the Orioles view him. Uh, could be another young guy that connects with players like Becker did. And, yeah, I love that they kept you know Felipe Rojas and Daniel Fajardo down in Delmarva. There were a few changes to that staff, but I love that those two guys, they seem to be pretty unbelievable resources for the young international players. Honestly, I, I would love to do an episode at dedicated to each level and just have a roundtable discussion with the staffs to get to know them more. I think that would be a pretty awesome because just like there's so much depth of talent of players, the coaching staff, there, there's a, a deep, deep roster of uh, coaches and instructors that make these guys better on a daily basis. Yeah, I like seeing most of the people return. I mean, we've heard nothing but great things about pretty much every coach in the system. And, you know, it makes me curious, what is the reason for when guys are let go or leave? And we'll never know because it could be their decision, the team's decision, but it doesn't necessarily mean that anything was going wrong. They just want to move in another direction. So best wishes to Brandon Becker and Josh Conway and and Tim, Gib Tim Gibbons as well. I think he went to coach in college or something like that. I, I yeah, feel like yeah. I saw something about that. But uh, but really, I'm just excited when we bring in someone new. I just trust this front office and their decision-making when it comes to bringing in these guys from you know unconventional ways, just like Roberto Mercado and a bunch of other people. So I'm excited to see why they brought these guys in, and I'm sure we'll hear a trickle down details about that throughout the season and then hopefully – after the season, we can talk to some of them and, and really get to know them like we have with some other coaches in the past. So, yeah, I'm just excited for the new guys to come in and, and see what they got. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want more background on any of these coaches, I would encourage uh, you to go back and listen to some of our older episodes. We have had these guests on. Tim Dijon, one of our favorite guests, has been on the show twice, including one appearance just a few weeks ago. We had Justin Ramsey on last year and we actually interviewed ryan fuller back in 2021 when he was the Bowie bay Sox hitting coach and he's of course now a hitting coach in the orioles major league side with uh matt pork salty so definitely go back and check those out that does it for this week's episode we will be back next week with one of our biggest episodes of the year which is the reveal of our top 50 prospects countdown if you are a member of our patreon community you've been getting that bit by bit um, for more than a month now. However, this is going to be the first time that we talk about all 50 players at the same time. And yes, we are going to highlight all 50 of them at various points throughout the show and look at the group as a whole. We also had an update late in the process because of the Daryl Hernandez trade. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And then, of course, you'll be able to check out the full reports over at BaltimoreSportsInLife.com. And while you wait for our next show, be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com where there's post-game coverage of the Super Bowl as well as some basketball coverage. Look for the Orioles coverage to ramp up as we approach spring training. And in fact, for our listeners who are baseball card collectors, Bob has a new piece up on BSL talking about the Topps uh, 2023 Series 1. Is that correct, Bob? Yeah, it comes out on Wednesday the 15th as you're listening to this. A lot of... Hype for Orioles uh, collectors. You got Adley, Gunner, and Kyle Stowers all have their rookie cards in there, as well as autograph from Taron Vavra and D.L. Hall. 
a little less likely to get those, but you know, there's plenty of Orioles content and I think that's just going to be the theme moving forward now that uh, we're a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to follow us on social media, including at BSL and the birds on Twitter. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have not signed up yet, please be sure to join our Patreon community, where it's for as little as $3 a month, you can have access to an exclusive WhatsApp app chat. And then at higher levels, we give you daily content, which we will only be ramping up as the season approaches and gets underway. Uh, for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Sweden. You've been listening to On the Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On the Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.